1: Hello and welcome to episode 98 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. My special guest in this episode is Den Davis, a super fan and collector since seeing the jam in 1979 as a 12-year-old. He has what's likely to be the largest collection of jam, vinyl and memorabilia in the world. We'll hear about Cover Stars, his new exhibition in Brighton featuring magazine covers of the band from across the planet, how he had to rebuild his collection after an IRA bombing in Manchester in 1996, all about his recordings of the live experience and something called the Jam Tape Collection, along with a love of the Style Council and Paul Weller's solo. You're going to love this one. Let's get into it. Den Davis, thanks for joining me. Good afternoon how are you doing i'm very well thank you uh this is lovely to see you thanks for being well, on
0: welcome to sunny manchester
1: hey look there's so many of your stories that we need to dig into this love of the jam is where we obviously have to start and we'll talk about your collection and that mentality that the people who are collectors have why the jam how did you discover them when was that
0: well it was when i woke up one morning and i turned over and there was a smurfs poster on my wall so that would have been like early 78 papa smurf and all of that sort of thing you know i 10 year olds do so just before my 11th birthday and my brother was playing these albums because we shared a room and i just thought they were even at that young age how good they were and throughout 78 it grew it grew and then he was wearing the grooves out of all mod cons when it came out later that year and i just got into it and as soon as he caught me playing the records over and over again he decided to become a bowie fan <laughs> it's on the jam because of me but down came the papa smurf posters and things like that and up went the jam ones on my half of the bedroom and it was a battle moving you know, on my mum had elvis playing from the living room my sister wasn't really into anything yet later she became into adam and the ants and then the jam but me and my brother were always fight he's five years older so you know i had to keep him sweet because i knew he was going to get me to the gigs so when it got to november 79 and the setting suns tour i was playing football a couple of years up so there was a of older lads who would go in and I just persuaded my brother to take me. I think I saw the, the two-tone tour the week before and then the jam and the jam was just it for me. You know, I got squashed and I remember your ribs are crushing and your, your lungs are giving way and you can't breathe and you're sweating and you just wait for it to end. But it's such an experience that you just got to do it over and over again. So that's what set me on the journey of being at the front row and being essential to be at the front row. I mean, I've had times when Nicky's invited me and I've gone to the Royal Albert Hall in one of the boxes and you, I said, you might as well watch it on the telly. You know, this is so far away. And she's like, oh, this is great. I said, no, no, get me down the front. So, yeah, that's where you'll find me at gigs. is down the front, because it it just has to be. That's what started it. But then in terms of collecting, early 1980, I got a a paper round. It was just before Going Underground came out. And the music press, they give the gem a load of support before that. But by that time, they were just on everything. And I can reel them off. Mates, Jackie looking, you know, all these obscure magazines that we look back on these days. And it just fascinated me. So I said to the the guy, the man in the corner shop, can you save me every paper that has the mention of the jam on it and I'll deliver your papers for free on a Sunday morning? I think I got the better deal because I don't think he realized how many magazines there (laughs) would be. And I don't know why I got into collector. I don't know. Obviously, there must be something inside. I definitely don't consider myself as like a nerdy stamp collector, but there was something that I just wanted everything of everything, you know, and, and wanted to guard it with my life and keep it. So that's what set me off on that. And then I got into record fairs later in 1980. Again, very young to be doing it, but my mate Paul Ladley was doing the record fairs back then. That's how we became mates. And I just discovered like, Strange Town Yellow Vinyl from America blew my mind that there's these things that you can actually collect besides the newspapers and things. So I started collecting the vinyl and I had a Saturday job on my mum's market stall selling greeting cards and all sorts of things. remember the Royal wedding in 81 and all the bunting and things like that. So yeah, I just went with the flow of just doing what I could. And my school was literally 100 yards around the corner. So I'd run home at lunchtime and have toast and keep my dinner money, save it up for the records. whatever we could do to earn a bit of extra money. The great thing back then was they weren't well, record collecting was expensive, but going to gigs wasn't. That's what got me eventually into the inner circle of the jam, if you like. it was 81 time, Carlisle Market Hall had spent £10.80 on my train ticket. The concert ticket was £4.50. And that was the first time I got backstage. I'd been to soundchecks, but I'd never been backstage before. And they autographed the ticket and I gave Paul a bootleg to sign. And he's like, oh, I haven't got that one. Can I have it? And I'm like, cost me 20 quid. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> fuck off 20 quid. You know, and I said, it costs 20 quid. I said, even bootleg tapes are a fiver. And he's like, oh, just thieves, you know, like he was calling the bootleggers, but he admitted that he loves collecting bootlegs and he collects, well, still does the small faces, etc. cetera. Uh, so it just got my mind ticking over. And then we met after a while again, a few more meetings. And then I just pitched him with this idea of doing tapes, from in the crowd so people could relive how it was to be in, in the crowd and all the noise of the crowd and singing along and all the rest of it. At first, it was like, no, Polydor, will record all the gigs. We don't need that. I said, no, you're missing the point. Bootleggers, and bootlegger charge a fiver. I'm talking about doing it as a service and charging a couple of quid. And after he thought about it, he just said, well, if you could do it for a couple of quid, then do it. I said, well, I'm at school, so I've, I've not got any overheads or anything. It's just my mum and dad's electric, you know. <laughs> So yeah, I started doing the Jam Tapes collection and 1982, I didn't go to school. Simple as that. I just went to all the gigs, whatever way I could get there. Famously on the back of a Lambretta over the Pennines to Sheffield and things like that. Whatever I could do, and because, as I say, played football with the older lads, they all went to the gigs, so I, I got to go on the coach, I got to go on the scooters, got to go in a car, whatever way I could get for my lift. Even I just got to the gigs, and for my fifteenth birthday, my mum bought me this. That's a nice story in itself, actually. We went to the Sony shop in Stockport. Me and my mate Carl Garson—I'll give him a name check—and there was this um, a Sony player that was like twenty. 20- 25 quid and this brand new stereo, no one's ever seen anything like it, Sony handheld tape recorder, which was like 120 quid. So I'd asked to look at the 120 quid one, thinking one day that'll be great, won't it? And this guy was messing about and he went off to serve somebody else and said to this guy, Can I have a tape recorder? He said, Yeah, yeah, which one? said that one on the right. And he went, All right, 25 quid, please and it was the 100-odd quid one that I got. <laughs> yeah, that's how I got me really good tape recorder. So a lot of them gigs, it was just you go back in your bedroom, you put the tape in, and you hear your mates around you, and you hear the crowd, and you hear Paul's little things off the mic, because I was always, that's at the front row. And back then, as much as he said, don't tell me dad and all that, I used to put the tape recorder wrapped in my parka between his monitors and just got a great sound. So a lot of them gigs recorded in 82 with me, recording them, and yeah, here we are now, years later, So many people have heard them and they've been done up. But that got me into recording. So then I got in a band when I was 16 and everything. Now I've got a a residential recording studio. That's what I do. And obviously do the exhibitions and all the rest of it. But it sent me on a lifetime's journey just the passion of being at the front, being with a crew of people that are like minded. And by the end of 82, Everyone in my school was like-minded. you turn around at a gig and you just knew every face because <laughs> they, they were all there, obsessed with it. So it was great, yeah.
1: Really enjoyable times. How did people find out about the Jam Tapes Collection service? then? So was words, how did you get one of these cassettes?
0: Record collector on the NME. I remember when the split was announced, I think it was in the NME that we advertised it. I was just like John with the box ads at the back, tape Services, and it was just like the Jam Tapes Collection Nonprofit organization, fully endorsed by Paul Weller, service for the fans to relive whatever. And the postman came, and there was just like two hundred envelopes on the doormat and there was cash from squaddies and everything and one guy bought the entire collection at that point before i get wasted in northern ireland i want to buy all the tapes i'm like this is mental and all my dad said was you're paying a bleeding electric bill
1: (laughs) (laughs) i know that was really entrepreneurial wasn't it really
0: it was but it wasn't about the money so my my life at that point I just invested it all into equipment. So I'd literally sleep with 10 tape recorders next to my head that would click off every 45 minutes and I'd have to turn up. If I went to school, I'd run home from school and swap all the tapes over every, you know, whatever lesson I didn't want to go into. Just run home and get the tapes going again. It was mental, really. It was literally a one-man band, but it was all over the world. But what it allowed me to do was swap tapes with literally every country. So I ended up with something like 240 live Gigs of, you know, not all recorded by me, but swapped and whatever. Yeah. So, you know, Canada and all, everywhere, everywhere they played, there's a live tape for it. Some better quality than others, but that's what I did. I was always honest. I said, look, if it's a mixing desk recording, it's, it's quality one. If it's a really bad, you know, inside somebody's pocket recording, then it's a, a five. Yeah, it was great. And to think back then, I'd write to Paul. I mean, he always said he wanted a copy of every tape. So that, that was the deal. You'd write to him and it'd be like three months later, you'd get a letter back. And it just, the world's changed so much, hasn't it? But then that that was the excitement of it. My mum did even know his handwriting <laughs> and things like that. You got a letter off Paul. My sister was always jealous with it. That was good to do. I don't know whether it made me entrepreneurial or whatever, but I think it was just, again, that completest thing of just get some more of it. And obviously because of the split, I think 83, 84, before I got into my own band, that was a really busy time for it because people just wanted to relive it. Mm. But I did the Style Council tapes as well I mean people don't know that about me that I went I saw the Style Council more than I saw the jam you know I saw the jam a lot but I did see the Style Council all the way through as well you know I've just followed his career to this day Go! I love going to European gigs there's always a good crowd of, of friendly faces that you see you know it's a shame that the European gigs have been cancelled this year but I do enjoy them
1: they're, they're decent yeah so that's always something that's on the list and I need to get that done I, there's so many things I want to ask you about <laughs> front row is a, is a similar feeling from my point of view I think there's a number of things- i think one i can't stand the whole gig and looking through somebody else's mobile phone the entire time does my night but you do want to feel like you're part of like a solo gig uh, obviously that's my experience of paul i love being part of that Yeah, you know, when it go kicks off a bit is always when you're being chucked about a bit but in the jam days it wasn't just kick off a bit was it christ <laughs> it was non-stop
0: and the, the, what you did get on the front and this is i don't know whether people know this is the secret you're getting the fans off the stage air blowers so you're getting some air <laughs> Whereas, if you're one person back, you're not, you're getting his armpit. If you're 50, <laughs> you're just squashed. I mean, you look at all those pictures from 82 gigs of all the jam gigs, they're soaked through to the skin. The tapes I've got from Bingley Hall, which I've got off the camera crew back then, there's some footage on that after the show, and everyone's walking out and they're absolutely drenched to the skin. That's how it was. But if you find yourself in Birmingham, and you've somehow got to get a train that leaves in five minutes and you soak through to the skin and you're 15. It's like, what do we do? Well, half the time, you really didn't. You just bunk down wherever it was and thumbed a lift the next morning. That's how that oh, it had to be. Yeah.
1: The most recent gigs, obviously, I got to the front barrier. But the thing I couldn't work out is, presumably, it's from a sound point of view, it's not the best place to be from hearing the whole of the band. Because what I noticed was when I was in front of Andy Crofts, I would hear a lot more of Crofts. And then I switched sides when I was in front of Steve Craddock and I heard a lot more of Steve Craddock. And then it was like, oh, hold on. I'm not hearing the whole mix of everything properly here.
0: Yeah, they do put some so like full mix monitors at the front, but you're inevitably going to get, like when you hear Paul's guitar, a hell of a lot more than the others. Steve Craddock's playing within ear monitors now. So the difference there is that you he doesn't have to have the monitors, but you you had the side monitors. If you know about how the sound works, you are getting some of it, but inevitably the best place is right in front of the mixing desk. That's where you want to be. If you want to get the perfect sound, I'm not bothered about the perfect sound. I'm bothered about being involved and, and seeing the little things that go on. And you get to know the songs and the mannerisms within songs and, what he says between tracks and things like that to me that's all relevant and it helps you get great photographs as well because you know he's going to do a certain thing at a certain point in the gig
1: You mentioned the love of Paul we should also obviously mention the other two Bruce and Rick and how important they were and are to the jam the legacy the the sound it wasn't just a Paul Weller show was it?
0: Well 100% I mean when
1: I did the
0: About the Young Idea documentary when I was in that I was at pains to say that to us the jam was a three piece it definitely wasn't the Paul Weller show I mean I'd, if I got front row tickets I'd get one night in front of Paul, one night in front of Bruce. That's the way I do it. 100% it was a three piece. And I do say that on the About the Young Idea documentary. And both Bruce and Mick have thanked me for that. You know, and I'm saying, what are you on about? There's no need to thank me. That's how it was. It wasn't the Paul Weller show. Obviously, it is now. You know, that, that's how it is. But it, it was a band. I don't think anyone ever said, oh, I'm going to see Paul Weller. Or, but. Interestingly, and I will get onto it in a bit about this, what I'm doing in Brighton now, but the magazines and the, and the press, you could see during the career how it edged towards Paul throughout 82. It's almost as though they knew that it was going to change. So he ended up being a lot more covers as an individual rather than
1: a band. Yeah, if you think of a, a lot of band makeups, often it's the, it's the front guy who's the known one. And then, I mean, I'll give you an example. I love the Stereophonics. Sorry, Stereophonics. I couldn't tell you who the rest of the band is these days but I know Kelly, the front man, right? But the jam feels very different.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. I I totally agree with that because I couldn't name you half the the band members in others, but so many girls at school fancied Bruce, so many fancied Rick. It was just how, you know, they've all had the favourite, the mullet haircut, you know, so many of the lads who could pull that off did want to have a mullet haircut. And I even know lads who had the Toblerone one when he, uh, late eight, late 81, you know. <laughs> I always remember a mate of mine, Rob Owen, he, he always prided himself on being the Paul and a lookalike. He was tall and had the look and the dark kind of... He had this, what we call the Toblerone haircut. And Paul got off the coach at Bingley Hall with this crew cut and everyone just looked at Rob and was, like <laughs> was like laughing and ah, you get to the barbers quick. Which, <laughs> with me being a curly head. Unfortunate. I could only ever have a crew cut. That was it. And even that fell out by the time I was mid-twenties. So <laughs> I
1: was going to say, you were delighted when Mick Talbot came along. He's like, yes, finally.
0: No, I didn't have that extreme curly hair that he had. Mine was Tameable, I think. He, he's, he's, <laughs> I remember that. Was it on the old grey whistle test or something? It was really sort of, yeah. Well, <laughs> there you go.
1: I guess your connection with the jam finishing, calling it a day, is a different one to a lot of fans. In the sense, I was, presumably you were gutted, obviously. But your connection with the jam continued for quite a while afterwards with, those cassettes and being inundated on requests and stuff of those right forevermore really
0: yeah the tapes carried on I think I stopped doing the tapes I ended it over to another mate late 85 and my band started then so I got into that but stayed with the connection with Rick and with Bruce Bruce Foxton's 100 men for example we'd go to all the gigs you know, I'd drive him around to a couple of them and things like that. And we'd go to his house and go and play snooker and things like that. And the same way, we stayed within. I did lose touch with Bruce during Stiff Little Fingers because I wasn't a Stiff Little Fingers fan. You know, but that was quite a long time. 10, 12 years, I think it was. And then obviously from the jam, that's been going 15 years now. So out of the blue, I own a studio called MCC Studios. But we had a concept called Drum School, which we started in 2003. We taught drums in schools, we had music tuition here and everything. And out of the blue, one day, someone just said, Rick Buckler's on the phone. And I'm like, yeah, of course he is. Anyway, I answered the phone and Rick was looking to get back into drumming again. And he was saying, well, I need a new kit. I'm doing this band called The Gift. So he drove up to the studio, I introduced him to Mapex and everything. And that was the point. Then I said to him, look, where's The Great White? I said, I know it's got to be somewhere. There was this myth that he put it in his garden, but that was a different kit. And he said, right, I'll make it my mission to try and find it for you. I think I got that in 2009 and it was at his old studio. It had never moved. He'd left his studio. It was in the, the cupboard in the lockup and he said, I found the kit. And I'm like, right, I'll be down. I'll pick it up. And the nice touch he did was there's a ride symbol And it was like the last note of the last song of the last gig as he hit that. And he wrote on it to then enjoy the kit. Wow. Which obviously I still got. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Incredible. As a collector, post-jam, style council, early days of Paul Weller, and we'll touch on the Weller comeback in a bit. You had a huge big collection, but we have to talk about Manchester. We have to talk about June 1996 and what happened there. Because this is, I mean... Awful, obviously, what happened, but astonishing what happened for you as well.
0: Yeah, we'd we'd only been there a a few months. My mate had clamped down records in the corn exchange. The opportunity came up to take over the cafe. I thought, right, what's the biggest thing around at the moment? Oasis. So we opened the, the Oasis mod-themed cafe, which was some jam memorabilia, mainly Oasis and so on. And we were down in the basement at the corn exchange. We just said, I'm going to do a jam exhibition, if you like, early doors of one, which was my vinyl collection. Not my memorabilia, just the vinyl, in the record shop because it was the Euros and because England were playing all the rest of it, we thought there'd be a lot of tourists about. Let's do that. We'll do this like jam convention sort of thing. And then on the day... Security guards were coming in saying, You've got to get out. And we're like, Yeah, right, whatever. As you do. And probably 20 minutes later, they say, No, you have to leave now. You can't get, you can't touch a thing. You've got to get out. And we literally were looking at the barrier at the red van with the white back on it and that little robot thing went off and we're all oh god is that all it was and we're just about to think we're going to go back in and then the explosion happened and it knocked a lot of people off the feet 100 yards behind me the CIS building all the windows blew out it was a really weird experience all the birds went into the sky you know birds that you didn't see it was so so scary my sister-in-law was there she was on I think she was on a Saturday job she was probably about 15 instantly crying everybody running all over the place and they didn't let us back in but later we found what had happened the glass dome of the corn exchange had gone 10 feet in the air and dropped back floor by floor like cascading down into the basement the entire building was in the basement so we were told we can't get back in yet we'd have to wait and we waited a couple of months and it had basically been flooded full of rats, full of everything, and the bulldozers were there, clearing it all out. I just tried to blag my way in just to see what was there, and it was just nothing there. But I noticed that the Union Jack that I had behind the, the counter was still there. Now, I'd paid some kid 15 quid a few years before that, like a long time before that, to shinny up the flagpole of the Armdale Centre and get me that Union Jack. So it was a prized possession, <laughs> um, and it was still there. So I'd I, I just... Ran past security, grabbed the uni said, it's mine that, mate, and I just came out with it, and I've still got that to this day. <laughs> that was the only thing I got out. That was the only thing. So in that collection was acetates, the 14-inch metal plates from Master Pressing's irreplaceable one-offs that could never be found. So after that, obviously, I thought about it, and it's, it's well-known because of that documentary. I just thought, well, that's that then, isn't it? You know, I've, I've got a collection of memorabilia got my memories I still had all the tapes but I just didn't have any of the vinyl and at that point I'd collected when you say a a collector I'd have the test pressing the acetate the UK and every other country and every other version possible of every release that they ever did it was beyond Amorak collecting (laughs) You know, but I don't know why I still don't think I'm alright but that's what my mission was so when the internet then came about and I think the millennium happened I started to think well might be a bit easier to get all these collections back now because I can contact people I don't have to wait three months for a letter to come through I can actually put it out there that I'm looking for whatever so I started buying other people's collections people you know were growing up and older obviously I mean I think I was 33 at the turn of the millennium and people were selling collections thinking well the jam are never going to come back or whatever or the, that's never going to be there so I started collecting again and then another chapter after that while I was collecting Steve White came to work at the studio he was going out with Sally Lindsay up in Manchester and Premier asked me about a drum room for him to do his lessons so he started working here and then one day he came up and told me the sad news that John Weller had passed away while he was actually working here and I said to him you know I've got all my diaries from 1982 literally the memories." are all there in black and white of going to all the gigs, all the shenanigans everyone got up to, how we got there, how we got home. Just fun tales of being at school that year when I did go in and everything. And the trauma of my mum and dad because my mum and dad went through a, a bad time that year and everything. And I said, I've always wanted to write a book. And John was the reason that I was able to get into them soundchecks, as, as many fans know. And by that time, I was a manager of my son's band and things like that. And I, I connected so much. I, I was inspired by John as a person and as a dad that that's what you do. You help your kids no matter what. You put the bread and butter on the table no matter what. But you look after the fans. And that's what I was doing with any bands that I ever managed was look after the fans because you're going to need them. So I just thought, right, I'm going to take some time out and write it. And throughout 2010, I wrote what is now going to be a feature film of the story of my journey in 1982. But I wrote it and went to Universal in 2010. And Universal said, well, you know, if you want to do a major feature film, you've got to raise the profile of the jam. So to, hear that was, to me, it was like... What are you on about? They've never gone away, you know. But I, <laughs> yeah, and I got what they said. So then I started working with Universal and, and providing them all the content. So they go, well, we want to put out the Hundred Club gig. Well, I've got the quarter-inch master tape of that. You know there you go you can have it i've got like the two inch of reading festival there you go you can have that so i was giving them the content and that was getting me closer and closer to universal and i said what do you mean exactly by raise the profile and i said well why don't you do an exhibition you know why don't you help us do a, a book release you know or, or a, all the different vinyl releases that you've seen over the last 10 years so i agreed to do that and then one day a good mate sam molnar came to me and said his good friend of ann weller's why don't i go around for lunch with ann so i went around had a cup of tea which was enlightening and really really nice to do and strange. She'd explained to me that Nikki had been unwell, needed something and wanted something to get her teeth into and, you know, inspire her again. So I said, well... Come on, let's do it together then. And we we started the talks of, of how it could be done. I remember she went to Paul and he go. He just said like he wants to see a load of old crap from all that, that long ago.
1: <laughs>
0: Which my first reaction was like he's not going to say no that is. And she said no, he don't care. You get on with it, you know. But he he said he wasn't going to do anything for us. He wasn't going to be involved. But good luck. And I'd seen him a lot around the European tour at that point and everything. And then Somerset House, we found the, the the right venue, which was perfect for the first one. He came along, did Front Row for the BBC, came seven times, loved it. And at the same time, the documentary was launched and everything. So it was a really great year for everybody reminisced and he reminisced. And, he, and when Nicky had found his school books and things like that, it was, it, he was blown away with that, that somehow they were there. But the journey before that of actually going through... Obviously, I had my archive, but going through their family stuff, like she pull out a quarter-inch tape and just chuck it on the floor. I go, whoa, 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 hang on, What's, do you know what that is? She says, no, no. I says, Blueberry Rock, it's the first demo they ever recorded. And she's like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Went back to Universal, and we'd had all these tapes, and they just said, how would you like to spend a couple of days in Abbey Road remastering all these tapes And we were like, yeah, let's do that then. So we did, yeah. We went to Abbey Road for a couple of days and we got all the audio of all the old demos and things like that, which are still unreleased. Yeah. All agreed that we could play them at the exhibition so people had headphones and they could listen. How many people did or even realise that they were there? I'm not really sure. Those recordings were there and really special. But so with the school books, his imagery of as a 14-year-old drawing these four people with the jam on the drum head. You know, he knew what he wanted. It was very Beatles, obviously, because he was only 14, but his vision was there right from the right from the start. Yeah, yeah,
1: it seems like he's always been very clear about how he wants something to be presented, how he wants things to look and feel and, and sound. You yeah, know, very direct. Yeah.
0: Always important to us to find prestigious venues to do what we did. It was kind of weird that it was Somerset House, because that was really prestigious, and then so was the Cunard building in Liverpool. I just thought, what a nice sort of clash. We were sat in meetings, and Nikki will laugh when she remembers, but at Somerset House, it was all very arty types. And it was, and it was like, we want a quaint and cute way of portraying the jam. <laughs> and i <laughs> I wrote WTF, exclamation mark, question mark on a piece of paper and passed it to Nikki. And she starts laughing and we just go, that ain't going to happen. I said, I want it in like 20-foot letters saying the best band in the fucking world. And I'm like, oh, I don't think so. Anyway, we got the call a few weeks later and they said, yeah, you've got the gig. Um, And we were blown away. And lo and behold... As soon as you went in through the door, that was the first thing you saw. The best band in the fucking world.
1: And the stories of everybody who... I mean, literally people in tears of the exhibitions. That band meant so much to them, yeah?
0: Shane Newsome was sat there every day, crying his eyes out. <laughs> I'd seen Shane at gigs, but I didn't know who he was. I mean, that, that's what was brilliant about the exhibitions. Where you saw faces that you've seen for 20, 30 years, and suddenly you put a name to them. You know, and obviously Facebook has become big in the last 10, 12 years, whatever, and that's brought the Jam Society and things like that, brought so many fans together. Even though most of my mates are still not even on Facebook, but it's help through you know i've got a mate in, in othersfield who, who looks at his wife's facebook to see what i'm doing i said just join it what's your problem you
1: know. <laughs> now i've got some of these fans i've got some questions from them for you philip baker on facebook asked then when he was allowed back in the building where his memorabilia was after the bomb which we talked about but he said did he make a decision to start again collecting it back to what he had straight away so did you immediately make a decision of I'm going to rebuild this collection, or presumably there was quite a lot of time where it was just absolute heartbreak, I imagine.
0: took me four years, yeah, four four years to to think I'm going to give it another go. Because can you imagine if, again, to be a completist, even now, there's been a few, and, you know, the Jam Society will know who they are, Lawrence Pryor, people like that. My thing went to even having every different version of each cover that came out in the UK and things and people go oh I've got everything I've got the modern world and whatever I'm going yeah but there's seven different sleeves and then there's four different prints within that that's where the Beatles things because I've got a mate who's got an auction house and he long time ago told me how Beatles fans collect you know, and it's right down to the intricacies of the matrix numbers and the the label print and the the sleeve print and things like that. So it became more of a technical thing, but I realized in 2000 I have got a chance to actually complete the worldwide collection. And I did. And I've got that. So Brazil setting suns. I'm another name check. Brian Curlew, who's going to go, oh, I've got it after. I've got it after. That's that's my Scouse accent for you. (laughs) (laughs) He loves, he's obsessed by setting suns. And he's got all of them apart from setting suns Brazil. And I only know of a couple of people that that have got it. You know, one besides me. That's what the thing was. A decision, a conscious decision. Am I going to go and do all that again? And the answer was, yeah, I'm going to do that again. And I did.
1: I have to ask, what's the difference between the Brazil one? Just a sticker.
0: Not a lot. <laughs> Just next to me over here, the, the, I'll, I'll show you. Oh, of this. Yeah, go on. That's the paper archive.
1: Wow. So we've got like loads and loads of box files all labelled up. Goodness me.
0: Yeah, so you start with 77 press, the bigger stuff, and then you've got 77 cuttings, and That goes on for every year. Every single article of the fan clubs, the fanzines, postcards, collectibles, ticket stubs... My ticket stub book is, you know, there's 300
1: ticket stubs in that. Wow. Um, We've got, we got m- multiple copies of Dennis Monday's book, probably every copy of Mr. Cool's Dream, right?
0: Yeah. These are the vinyl, but this, for example, that's all in the city.
1: <laughs> what? Oh, my God. Yeah. So what's, what he's just pulled off, all right? So looking at me, I'm going to put a video, a little clip of the video up. we have to do this then. Front cover of The Modern World, he's pulling it back, and then you're just being seeing row and row and row of the spines of Modern World. And those are all different ones from different countries.
0: They're all different ones from different countries, yeah. And then over there is every different seven-inch from every country. And then under there is every different CD and cassette. So they're all there. And then it's just like a, a glorified <laughs> man cave. Here you've got Bruce Foxon's wardrobe from the tour. That's Bruce's dressing room. And then all of that. And then down the corridors, because the place is big, so you've got all the posters and things like that.
1: Wow. We need to do another episode, my friend, where I come and visit you up there and we we do a little tour around that.
0: Yeah, welcome to. <laughs> on the stage is the great white drunk Well, it's not now, it's in Brighton. But the great white kit, Paul's amps, Bruce's amps. And I've got a picture of me on bass, Nicky Weller, singing, Gary Crowley on guitar and Russell Reed and Nicky's partner on the drums, which is a great, great photograph from when they came up to the studio. Nice, nice. You know, and apart from Steve White using the studio, Rick Buckler's recorded here with, with bands that he's managed and things like that. Great
1: times, great memories. Yeah, love it, love it. Right, some more questions from the fans before we talk about what's happening in Brighton because this is really exciting. So the Autumn Cobbler on Twitter, can you ask him if there's a bit of memorabilia that he's still searching for? And actually, Rachel Phillips on Facebook, what's the one piece of memorabilia that you haven't got that you'd like to have? Is there anything?
0: Yeah, the black and white suit from the 1979 gig at Manchester Apollo. It's really famous because it's like one black leg, one white leg and it's on the front cover of Melody Maker and he only wore it that one night and nobody's been able to find it. Nicky used to give away as competition prizes and things like that, things to the fan club through the fan club. So if you, if you won, you you get Paul's trousers, Bruce's shirt, things like that. So again, I was able when i have been buying collections up to buy things like that. Having contacts like Twink, for example, buying shoes that he'd got from 82 and Dennis Mondays provided me so much stuff, you know, even last year I got 21 cassettes off him that got loads of content on. (laughs) This is the thing, if anyone referred to me as the bootlegger I'm just not the bootlegger, you know I've never put any of this stuff out. My thing was recording the gigs to relive the gigs at the time. I've never recorded the Weller solos and things like that and I wouldn't, even though I've got all this content wouldn't put it out which is why it's great that Universal put it all out you know all live albums that came out they've like legitimised bootlegging almost you know it it was brilliant to do and they're really collectible you know people are really going mad for all those that came out well that's the one black and white suit
1: okay John Campbell which piece of memorabilia is priceless for him which was the most difficult to get his hands on
0: two different things there the most (laughs) prized is that train ticket from 81 that I mentioned earlier £10.80 for the train 4 pounds fifty. For the gig, the tickets autograph, that's just still my prized possession because it was the first time I'd been backstage where they're all three just sat around talking and laughing and joking with everybody. And probably the only thing I had in my pocket at the time was the train ticket and the <laughs> autograph. I've got all sorts of stuff, little scraps of, you know, my school books and things like that where I tear out a page and you can literally see it's torn out, but all three autographs are on it. I've got quite a few of things like that. Some of the vinyl, you know, there's certain things that I can't replace like I say, massive metal plates and things like that. Getting the, there's the Roxy bootleg with the gatefold sleeve. I only know of a handful of people who have got genuine ones of that. The proper bootlegs from back in the day, they were the holy grails and things like that. The Tai EP is the most expensive jam record that I'm aware of because it's all around the world but it's also got the Sex Pistols on it and it was an EP that came out in 77 only 300 that I'm aware of that were made at the time and because the Sex Pistols fans are even more nutty than us they'll pay three grand for that it's been bootlegged I don't know of anyone else that's got one of them so that's kind of the Holy Grail but a lot of people put up Holy Grail as like the speckled vinyl young man from Woking but because I know the guy who made the bootlegs back in the day and actually got impressed it kind of feels different when you know that why has it got different labels on the seller? Well, because they ran out of the others, so they just got what they could, <laughs> you know, and you get to know a bit of the inside thing. And today, I think bootlegs have been ruined now. People can get one, one offs pressed, which means you can't collect it because he's just got one off for himself. And I've always been talking about redoing the retrospective book to really put it out there of, of what there is. And as you just saw there, if, you, if I say to people, yeah, there's 45 different versions of In The City, they're all going to go, what? But that's completist. And it's, do you want to be completist or not? You know, the Russian flexi-singles, and there was some Russian postcards even before that, which are really random. They're on like a postcard v- vinyl, and it actually plays terrible quality, but it's <laughs> still a play-
1: I mean I find it stressful enough about getting into an artist again now so I got back into vinyl I got rid of the vinyl I was falling into thinking CD was the way forward and then no no, no it's not CD now it's all MP3 get rid of all that so I've now since lockdown started getting the vinyl again but the thing I've noticed a lot of the artists I like the current stuff's on vinyl but some of the a lot of the stuff was never ever released on vinyl like Catherine Williams people at like Hannah Peel and stuff so you can't be a completist on vinyl in that way can you and it's bloody frustrating but that's stressful enough let alone this <laughs>
0: yeah, I guess that's why I've never got beyond collecting the jam <laughs> I mean the jam is my thing I mean I, yes yes I've got all the style castle yes I've got all the poor world, but I haven't got anything like what I have for the jam the jam is complete the style castle bought everything poor bought everything but I just get it religiously I, when, when they come out you order it and you get it but just one version of each is, is enough for that I've got so many spares of, of the jam as well and everyone's always saying oh just sell us that and that don't sell anything but I have bought a lot of people's collections so in Inevitably, you do end up with spares. Tell me about this film. Ten years ago, I'd written the manuscript as a book, knowing that I wanted to make it into a feature film, but not knowing how you go about that. So I met with Chris Green ten years ago. He's just done Pebble and the Boy, and all the memorabilia you see in Pebble and the Boy was provided by me, which I've got a little cameo, and so has my son got a little cameo in that as well. So thanks, Chris. But yeah, me and Chris got talking then. I knew he had a couple of scripts that he wanted to get out, and I knew I wanted mine to be done of the time, I didn't want to do a modern day thing and his was a different thing altogether. So we agreed we'd kind of leave mine there while I did go away and do that thing of getting the jam's profile up. And then since Liverpool, there's been a lot going on in life in the studio and things like that. And then obviously COVID and over COVID, I've thought, I've really got, got to do the film that's what I want to prioritize. So when the first Brighton exhibition, which was going to be on the beach, got canceled because of COVID, I just said, right, a few different projects I'm going to get going. So I've got the feature film itself, which is all about just life. It's just a laugh. You know, it's just a journey and it's just teenage things that... Some people say, oh, you can't say that these days. And I'm like, well, if I can't, I'm not going to make it. I mean, my dad was Peter Kay, or Peter Kay is my dad. You know, that that is exactly what it was like. And back then... You did sit around the TV together and watch Top of the Pops. It was the highlight of the week. Your mates would all gather at the phone box after Top of the Pops and all talk about what was on it. You'd meet up for school in the mornings. You'd all wag the same lessons, and we had what we call the wag room. As soon as it was done, maths, we were down the back of the bike sheds, over the tennis courts, through somebody's garden, and back to my house for tea and toast. (laughs) But there's scenes in it where... We sat around listening to the chart rundown, and there's 12 of us. have all bunked off, and you we weren't allowed out of school at our school because it was a Catholic school across the road on our school. So there was this agreement between them for some reason that they kept us locked in. You know, so you had to get over the fence to get home. And so we did. We were all there, and there's a, a great scene where it's when Malice goes to number one. There's a, a mate of mine who's I've just seen him stay. Actually, a great mate, Stephen Burgess, Bowie was called. He was a punk, but he was slowly getting into the jam. But so there'd always be banter around. So at the time. Golden Brown was out, which we were all slagging off and everything, but just the banter of the chart rundown. I think Meatloaf was there and Sauce Cell were there and things like that. And then the jam went to number one, and, and all 12 lads just erupted into the air, just singing and dancing along, you know, forgetting the differences and everything. And then we just got back to school and walked through the front gate because we couldn't be bothered getting done. For it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll take the detention, thanks, no problem. And how far are you along? How long will it take to create this thing?
0: I could have done it a lot faster, but I've just Chose the time. So we're at the stage now where we're resubmitting a cast wish list, and the soundtrack was put to poll. 10 years ago and and he agreed it then So I've just got to renew that Nicky will be an exec producer with me I want the band members to be exec producers with me as well I want it to be a real feel-good factor film That all the fans can get behind But it's a bigger budget so that it can go worldwide So we've got to be careful how it's done It can't be just too British because it, it just gets pigeonholed then I've got directors in mind, I've got cast in mind But can't put any names to it right now
1: Hey, well, this is like the ultimate tease, but my goodness me, we're all intrigued and looking forward to finding out more, man.
0: I'm also doing a mod documentary with Eddie Pillar, Chris Green, and Steve Rowland. Millions like us, we've done all the the test interviews, which we filmed at Black Barn. Again, Nicky's involved with that as well. Hopefully, that'll be something that comes out on Sky Arts later in the year. And then me and Nicky doing a fan club book with all the fanzines, because I've got everything and scanned it, so that's going to go into a book. Hopefully, that'll come out maybe hopefully August, so they can get it for their exhibition and the the cover stars exhibition that i'm doing I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to put that into a book as well because that's a history of the music press yes it is the jam that's featured but that's why Brighton museum wanted to do it, it was because the retrospective look at the press back then and all the different things and when smash hits emerged and things like that and you've got your flexi pop in there and things it's a real different way of looking at it if i was going to do anything exhibition-wise this year it was to do something different that allowed me to do the other things so it was perfect to find the the staff and everything at, at Brighton were so enthusiastic about the jam and they've all got stories because they're all of a certain age and obviously Brighton is where the final concert was, so it means so much to everybody, it's the obvious place. If I was ever going to do about the young idea again, me and Nicky want to do a permanent place, and that's we'd love to find that permanent place in Brighton. And then I'm talking the level of Liverpool, everything that was there, yeah. which I've still got I still got all of that in storage. And yeah, when we find the right venue, we'll do that. But this this gallery exhibition was exactly that. I wanted to do something that more like Somerset House in the way that they run it once you've set it up. So we've put it on a plate for them, really. We've done all the artwork. We've got it all fitted out. It's on for six months. There's no rush. I don't want people to come rushing down for that and having to come again in the summer for the other one I'd rather have just come whenever it's convenient to them and enjoy both so it's a free exhibition at the museum it's just a different way of portraying it so hopefully it appeals to a different audience as well
1: so this summer Brighton really is the place to go if you're a Jam fan if you're a Weller fan if you love that band because there's so much going on so this is the Jam magazine covers 1977 to 82 in association with Brighton Museum and it's a brand new exhibition that you put together Is really original iconic magazine and music press covers from right around the world again so we're not just talking uk you've collected from all over the place again right
0: new zealand australia japan germany italy belgium france and holland canada USA and obviously the UK and even Southern Ireland or Ireland yeah and you just wouldn't think it I'm talking front covers there it's not just that the were mentioned in a magazine in New Zealand actually made the front cover even though they never played there
1: <laughs> that's bad isn't it that is also the power of press that you say so yeah, magazines were such a big thing weren't they from finding out about you know how, that was how you found out about the bands you loved
0: yeah I spoke to Dennis Monday at this last year and said that how amazing when you think these days because I've, I've tried many times with bands if you thought you Your first single could see you on top of the pops and see you on the front cover of all music press from day one. It's just unheard of. I mean, now you've got to already have had a million downloads and 20 million TikTok followers before you even get a sniff of anything. Polydor really supported the band. And, you know, you always say, well, why didn't they have number ones and things first? So they actually replaced their marketing team after When You're Young and Strangetown didn't make the top 10, replaced them. Um, and the plan was obviously Eaton Rifles, number three, leading to going underground being number one. That's something in the Brighton ex- exhibition, besides the magazine, that they asked me to put a cabinet together. So we've got the great white drum kit is there. Paul Weller's in the city suit and shoes, which I've never shown before, because I've always been too scared. Because I guess that's the prize possession, because... You know, yeah, we had a few suits that year, but that's the suit from that time. It's got Rick's suit jacket from, from in the city as well. And, and Bruce's, um, pinstripe boating blazer and his, um, tube station t-shirt and things. But there's also the suitcase and the suitcase story still has the Concorde tags on it. So when they're in America, they get the news that not only is going underground going to chart top 10, but it's going to go straight at a number one. They hope to get a number one, but not necessarily the first week. And John just said, right, that's it. Pack up. Let's get on Concorde and fly back. And that's what they did. So that suitcase has got the stickers of all the gigs, age passes and things like that, that Rick used but it's still got the Concorde tags on it.
1: Wow, that is incredible. I mean that's the kind of thing now you just go, yeah, you you get home, rip it all off, chuck it in the bin, right? But the fact is it's there.
0: It's it's there and it tells its own story. So again, the museum are fascinated by that. And if there's anyone listening who knows how to get on the repair shop, me and Rick would go on the repair shop and and fix that suitcase up a little bit more than it is but the museum love it as it is you know with stickers peeling off and things like that they love that but i'd like to see it sort of made to look a bit like it was back in the day i'd, I'd love to get on the repair shop I don't know how to... <laughs> well
1: we'll look into that oh my god this is incredible i have to say i mean this sounds brilliant um i mean shane juice going to be an absolute mess when he comes to brighton this summer isn't he let's be fair
0: <laughs> yeah he's probably an absolute mess every time he goes out <laughs>
1: Bless him, same. Love
0: you, Shane. Love yeah. you,
1: Shane. The thing about the PR is really interesting, because you're right. I mean, that, that presumably when the jam first came on the scene, the Polydor PR team were all used to promoting, you know, Doris Day and all that kind of stuff. It was a bit of a shock to the system, I'd imagine.
0: Yeah, the story girls that they kind of snapped them up in haste, if you like, they would they didn't want to miss out. And they probably didn't know. Like you say exactly, the, the polydor compilations have got at that time some crazy bands on there. There's one thing going back to the vinyl, mispresses presses are really weird. You've got Mod Cons from Sweden has got like a traditional Swedish umpar band on the A side rather than All Mod Cons. So you got home and you put your needle on it and it played that. And a similar tale for Beat Surrender from Canada, the 12-inch has got some kind of French-Canadian band on that. They're, I would say, pretty rare. You know, I don't know many people. that's. They all might have the village people on start because that was, you know, I think a good few thousand got out of the factory. But those others are pretty rare, really.
1: I love the idea of people getting home putting this on and going, oh, my God, the jam sound is not for me anymore. What's th- what's this? <laughs> yeah.
0: And how many people you took them back to the shop and said, this plays the wrong band, not thinking <laughs> that they're uh, collectible.
1: Yeah, that's know? true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what do you make of the music industry? Because I know your kids have followed you into the music business as well. What do you make of it now in terms of vinyl and the resurgence of vinyl and you know, every release comes in a different colour and dinked vinyl this and whatever?
0: I think it's great that the vinyl's got back in. It, it gives bands a chance done it because all the downloads and everything just there was just no money and there is no money I don't even hire my studio out to bands anymore because it just didn't have any money you know so it's private my lads band use it all the time because if anyone asks me I'll let them use it but I don't promote it as a, a commercial okay. studio because well apart from the jam archive being here there's just too much stuff and I, and I just decided not to do that anymore but it's a shame because it's really really tough to, to get a deal I mean in terms of my lads own band I mean they were in America recording an album with all sorts of promises around it that it was the producer of the Kooks band and things like that they were talking management label the whole lot we've been to LA quite a few times so we we're there for a month got it recorded we were waiting for the tracks to come back and waiting for the date to go back to finish the album and COVID hit and that was it two years of silence yeah. you know it was like well, you can't come back and they still not been back now and now they're like well are we even going to use those tracks because it's two years ago and it's tough and then keeping the, the mental strength if you like to carry on so any bands that have I'm not going to say it's easy for indie bands but I've had more success with with indie bands that have come through the studio and they've gone on to you know other things and so on but there's probably so many indie bands especially Manchester I used to get bored of every band that came in and thought it was Liam Gallagher and he was like oh god not another but they do seem to get that little bit of easier access to gigs and things like that there's a scene they can get on excess radio they can get into gigs and they can build up a following if you want to jump on the bandwagon you've probably got a chance of doing that but I like the bands that come through that are trying to be different you know trying to be unique and trying to do but it's a lot harder for them that's for sure
1: well look give us a shout out to your son's band then what are they called
0: called Young Y-O-U-N-G with dots in but at the time, now oh, they were Man United got into them and things, and they were doing TV interviews and played at halftime at Old Trafford and things like that, and got their own features in their programs and things, and all the festivals. Everything was going well. Went to America, did the album, but that's the same. For loads of people, loads of bands, loads of just general. I guess you wouldn't have even been doing this if it hadn't been for COVID.
1: No, that was, well, that, no, exactly. I was too busy, man. We've, and now I'm too busy, but the, we've started this roller coaster, right? And it's not stopping.
0: Life's certainly changed and it's, it's how you handle it and how you come out of it. And definitely for me, I mean, I had people who know me, I, I was a football coach and everything, and my needs were just gone. And three years ago, I had to have both knees replaced, complete complete knee replacements. And the shock to the system of that was weird because I'd gone from being this football coach that even in pain, I still could do it, to not being able to do anything. And being told, well, you, you can't run anymore. You can't expect to run anymore because you've got new knees now. Which that hit me. And then on top of that, COVID and the cancellations of the exhibitions, because, you know, Brighton Beach... That was really going to be the ultimate for me to to say, yeah, Brighton Beach, how cool's that? And hopefully one day that'll, that'll
1: happen. We should talk Paul Weller solo, actually. What, what I said earlier on we should talk Paul Weller solo. So how much does his solo music mean to you? And did you see any of the most recent tour? Did you get to see any of that? Yeah,
0: yeah. went to a couple of shows. It's the story of your life, isn't it? You've grown up with him, literally. I still say as a biased jam fan that the, the highlights of the night are always when he plays the jam songs. That's clear. But it's nice to hear the Style Council ones as well. Hats off to him because I admire, you know, no disrespect to Madness, but they've played the same album for 40 years. Well has done 40 albums in 40 years or whatever the number might be and still grows. And still keeps going and looks healthier and younger than than ever. When you go to Black Barn and you see what he's doing there and everything, it's visionary. And it's great to see that work and environment. And I've just seen on social media today that he sat there with Suggs. We were there on Monday morning. We were we doing a, a limited edition steve Craddock scooter with a view to doing a paul Weller one eventually but we're doing the steve craddock one first so we were there interviewing steve and talking all things scooters with jeff shabble and rick bartley a shout out for rick bartley rick's done all the artwork and all the design work for the cover stars exhibition he's done a fantastic job worked through the night many many times to get it done on time so yeah and he's from scootery magazine so he, he does all, all the articles for that good lad
1: Nice, nice. Okay, well, look, this has been so lovely, Dan. Thank you so much. It's been great getting a little glimpse of, of your collection. But yeah, at some point, we have to come up and walk through that properly, my friend. That would be amazing. Yeah, no problem. As you know, uh, with the podcast, uh, there are two questions that I always end on. So the first one, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the Star Council, or Solo. What are you going to go with?
0: Oh, I wish I'd have thought about this. It's my, Um <laughs> man in the car shop for the jam. Walls come tumbling down for the Star Council and it does always vary. <sighs> Floorboards up. I love that period. That was great at that time. So many.
1: <laughs>
0: Every day. That's the thing. I mean, it used to be Boy About Town FlexiPop version. You know, because it was different and I loved it. It was so energetic. But now looking back, Man in the Corner Shop, to me, again, because of the newspapers and all the rest of it, it just had this thing that it was written for my street, as we all thought, obviously, but it, yeah. it was. And it was so relevant to me. Yeah. So that still still rings
1: true. Now, you probably have like 15,000 versions of that song. So which one are you going to narrow that down to?
0: The green vinyl version of Sexy yeah, there's, there's three different colours of the flexi disc, and then there's the hard vinyl as well. <laughs> and obviously multiple times. <laughs>
1: yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, look, final question. Um, so the purpose of this podcast is not least to meet amazing people like yourself with these stories of Paul and this love of the, the career. But it's for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. If it happens, and my God, it has to happen at some point, surely, what should I ask him?
0: What gets him out of bed in the morning to inspire to keep going after all these years? It's probably the kids, right? And the the noise of the TV being turned on in the morning, in my experience. (laughs) Probably, yeah. But what keeps the drive? It is amazing, isn't it, to be able to keep doing it. You know, and and it's a well-known fact that he knocked the drink on the head 10 years ago and stuff like that. And to see him so well and full of energy is just great to see. Put a lot of the mid-50s into shame when he's in his (laughs) nearly... I always think that about when I'm 64, the Beatles song, because he's such a big Beatles fan. And he's going to be sixty-four probably by the
1: time this goes out. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's nothing of him, is there? There's all of us with you know. There's a COVID's not been kind, right? But he's he's looking fabulous.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and that's what gutted me about my new knees was that I didn't realise I was going to end up looking like normal Whiteside. (laughs) (laughs) I'm determined. I call it the. I call it credible scooter weight. And that's what I'm aiming for. By the by the end of the summer, I'll be I'll be back to credible scooter riding.
1: I've
0: <laughs> got six scooters as well. I'm obsessed with scooters as well as everything else.
1: As a completist, so as somebody who you know you've got that collector bug and that kind of, you know, I need, I want everything. So I know that's a jam specific. There must be a lot of stuff in the Weller archive in his own personal vault that has never seen the light of day from just from the solo years, if you think about it.
0: Yeah, there is. I mean, like I say, the 20 odd tapes I've got off Dennis Monday last year, things on there that you have know, not been heard and not been released. There's, you know, jam demo sessions with Long Hot Summer on and things like that.
1: No way!
0: Yeah, Doctor Love, all them sort of things that were later used for Tracy and things, All they were all done in the jam days. Obviously, it's well-known Solid Bond in Your Heart and things like that. But yeah, there was loads of stuff like that. And every time they did... At recording sessions, Paul just play a load of covers as well, just to make the days interesting, I guess. So, you got those Beatles ones, Rain and And Your Bird Can Sing, and things like that. That was something that came out really early in my collecting, and it was like these really poor quality cassettes of Rain and And Your Bird Can Sing with Dreamtime on it from the demos of sound effects. And they've been cleaned up and used since they've been released on extras or whatever. But the video stuff, that that's what I'd like to see. And I've got mates who are looking into it, but the archives of TV stations to get the perfect quality of all the like the jam in Chicago and things like that. You know, we, we got a lot of um video when we did Somerset House that we remastered and, and used. And they've released some. The jam complete wasn't the jam complete. You know, I've got 20 times more videos th- than that, but it'd just be nice to get The great quality ones, and just give everything to the fans, just let them hear it all. Forget Paul's quality control for five minutes, you know, and just say, Just let them have it. No one's going to criticize you if you play a bum note here or there. Just let them have it. One thing I would like to see released and I know it's available is the mixing desk master recording of the final concert in Brighton. It's never come out. It's been bootlegged but it's not come out as an official release and that audio hasn't been put out as an official release so that we should start a campaign. 40 years in December come on Universal let us put it out.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Hey man this has been such a special conversation with me. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate Appreciate it. Good luck with the exhibition. The Jam Cover
0: Stars, it's on now and it's open till October and it's free to get in.
1: Dan, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. All
0: right. Thanks, Dan. See you soon. Cheers.
1: My thanks once again to Dan Davis. Some really special memories there as well. Do check out his latest exhibition, Cover Stars. It's on at Brighton Museum and Art Gallery. Runs Tuesdays to Sundays until the 2nd of October. Admission is free with entry to the museum. And I have to say, not only does it show that massive impact that the jam had on the music world in the late 70s, early 80s, but it also provides a historical snapshot of the music press and culture at the time. It's one of those exhibitions that works if you're a diehard jam fan or not. Find out more information with loads of photos from Den on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Now, if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, there are various ways to show your support. You can buy me a virtual coffee or get some of our new exclusive official merchandise at my website, PaulWellerFanPodcast.com. Just head into the store. You can buy tickets for the live podcast we have coming up. We'll be in Halifax as part of the Paul Weller Day on July 3rd when Paul plays the Peace Hall. Plus, I'll be hosting Q&As with Rick Buckler, Steve White and Mick Torbett in Brighton this summer as part of Nikki Weller's This is the Modern World Exhibition. Details on my website. Number three, you can share a link to the podcast on your social media channels. It all helps to spread the word. You'll find me on social media. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram or Facebook, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. OSEA makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo.